Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Travis. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, it's Ben. Super Bowl this Sunday. This is Ben's day. This it, is Ben's day. Right? Well, I didn't really do anything to earn no, it. No, we have to give it up for Ben. You're going to give it up this to me? Is your, you made this well, happen. Well, thank you so much. I think, you, I think a lot of the NFL pro, it owes a lot to you because you carry a lot of it on your shoulders. You know, I have said that every single day in the mirror. The NFL should be thanking me. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, and we have a super episode for you. We speak with Jessica Donati a little bit later on. She is a journalist and author of the book Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. We have a great conversation. Yes, Afghanistan, the war, it continues. I know it hasn't been on the tip of people's tongues or in the front of people's brains or talked about in media for that matter. But nonetheless, it is still happening. So we have a great conversation, especially now that we have uh, Joe Biden, the Biden administration, his Mm -hmm. foreign policy is going to be a bit different than Donald Trump's. The big question is, should we stay or should we go now? And this question has been asked for uh, about 17 years. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the forever war continues on, and we have a great conversation about what's it like on the ground there. What's it like to be a journalist? Uh, Jessica also spent time in Libya. That's kind of where we start the conversation. And these people, journalists, especially war journalists, they're the bravest people I've ever seen in my entire life. Like when I speak with her or my friend Saman or Bobby – the way that they just like talk about things that they do regularly, the insane is, stuff, as if it's normal, yeah, is, is, is spoken about in such casual terms. It's, it's unbelievable. There's a cert, there's a point where you, uh, she was talking about having to wear um, a burqa, yeah, the hijab, and yeah. uh, uh, I really thought for a second, just for a second, you were going to ask her like, so when you change into a, a burqa, that allows you to be to blend into the crowd and to disguise yourself because we're both playing Hitman Three right now. Oh, <laughs> I, I yeah. Like, and that will allow you to sneak up behind a security guard and then subdue and then snap their neck and then change into a security guard outfit while stashing that body into some kind of supply closet. Bruh, I'm going to say this about Hitman 3. That game is hard. You got to be stupid. You got to try your hardest to be stupid. I, they want you to be smart, but you just hide in the trust bathroom. Me. You you turn on the sinks and you wait for every single person in the building to come in and then you kill all of them and stack their bodies in the corner. I am trying to be so stupid when I play that game. I've got a bunch of edibles in my brain. <laughs> I'm trying to really dumb it down. 
And for some reason, those people that I am trying to kill, they get all mad at me and they kill me instead. I don't like them one bit. Jessica Donati, Eagle Down, The Last Forces Fighting, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Check out that interview here uh, coming up in the very, very recent future hmm. is that right is this tenet is, is this a time shifting three hour epic uh science fiction movie absolutely well before we get to that fascinating interview about extremely serious subject matter made a little bit of fun made a little fun because of me you know i like to bring a little fun yeah. and humor into it you know i always like them have my humor there's nothing fun about what we're going to talk about here. Uh, wrong, actually. The absolute truth is out. <laughs> wait, and, wait uh, so is it, hold on. Is it absolute truth or absolute proof? It's absolute proof. Because on OAN, <sighs> they do call it absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And then the actual title, it seems, on the title card of the documentary is absolute proof. Air quotes documentary. Of course, we're discussing Mike Lindell. You may be sleeping on one of his pillows right now. If that is the case, I highly recommend you get a different pillow because evidently they don't really work. The man is completely and utterly insane because he's not using his own product. Therefore, he's not sleeping. He's not sleeping. He he said he has not slept. He said he has slept three hours a night for two months. He has been busy editing this massive like Ben Hur length uh, documentary uh, called Absolute Proof. According to him, Absolute Proof. Some other people have a little bit. They have like a shifting <laughs> idea of what the title is. Sure, uh, but he has been yeah up. He's been up all night, uh, sleeping three hours per night, as he said, mm-hmm. uh, making this documentary. And just like someone who recently had a child, they're up at night. The baby is crying. He wakes up to the cries of freedom, and he says, "I better get back." to editing my documentary, which he edited to a measly two hours. Measly. And it is just him in this room. So why does this matter? Obviously, we're going to make fun of Mike Lindell. We'll have a little a good time with it because, um, you know, we like our good times here. But this is increasingly um, unhinged. Unhinged. And it the people who still believe that the election was stolen, the people that still believe uh, that Donald Trump is president are looking to people like Mike Lindell for, as he said, absolute, absolute proof, proof of the absolute truth that Donald Trump is still president. So it could be used, these, regardless of how ludicrous it looks to us, this documentary is being watched by countless amounts of people. A lot of people. And indeed, they do see it as the absolute truth. It's hard. But, it is hard. Of course, to, ironically, there is zero proof presented. The documentary. So last Friday, OAN premiered it on their network. Ooh, OAN. Yes, to uh, to this two hour documentary. You can't really find it anywhere else now either because it's only on his website. And I am a little disappointed that it wasn't on the My Pillow website, like on the just the homepage because it's on his personal website. He should just put it on the My Pillow page. Really should at just this point tie it together because they're. We, when I think my pillow, I'm not thinking of the pillow now. Obviously, no. I'm thinking of the guy who is trying to save democracy by by making a two hour documentary and uh, doing ex- just numbers, uh, copious numbers of lines before before uh, f- filming this stuff. Well, he's a former drug addict, which again, you know, there's I'm not going to diss him diss him for that, but you can see Travis and I were talking before the show. You can see this is scratching that crack itch. He is, he is upset. What I'm yeah. saying is he is obsessed he is right obsessed. now with this. Well, I, you could watch if you watch him and you will watch him for 2 hours straight because the, the camera <laughs> is fixed on him. It is not a documentary in the sense that it travels or goes to different places or even to other scenes because it is 
just a fixed camera looking at him in what appears to be like a blue uh, cyber world, like a lawnmower it's man a, world. Yeah, it's a super simple thing you can just order online. It's like $50 to get the graphics that he has behind him. But let's just play a little bit of the death growl of the movement that still believes Donald Trump is president. Well, so first I want to play this disclaimer that this is the disclaimer disclaimer that OAN put before the documentary. Hold on a second. OAN. Yes. The network that brought us people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. The, 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 I wish I was those. I know there's a lot of OAN viewers out there, but you know, I was on OAN one time. Were you really? I was on talking about immigration and they thought I was some weird person, but I was like, (laughs) no, just totally normal. And they were completely stunned. And I was like, I called the person who was booking me at the time. And I was like, I don't think I'm for that. I should not be at OAN. And they were like, oh, sorry, we didn't know what it was. And then and they was put like, you on uh, Paranormal Caught on Tape. Then I was on Paranormal Caught on Camera. Camera. Yes. And now I'll be on Fox Nation coming up here on Wednesday. So isn't that wow, exciting? Circle I go, of life. Circle of life. It all comes together. <laughs> Nonetheless, when it comes to OAN, the idea that they have to put a disclaimer on is just further evidence of how, I'm going to say the word, wackadoo Mike Liddell has become. If OAN has to put this disclaimer on, it's phenomenal. I mean, honestly, it's very strange that they they should be very terrified of getting sued right now because they are going to get sued. And this disclaimer, I don't think really and sued, of course. I don't but, think it really uh, alleviates any like responsibility that they bear for showing it. But we put the disclaimer on. Well, because uh, we were talking before, Newsmax they had Mike Lindell on uh, one of their uh, incredibly entertaining shows. So good, and he started to talk about his conspiracy theory, and they shut him down immediately. Talking about, of course, what's going on right now with the voting machines, and we have talked about voting machines. I do want them to make sure that they are accurate, make sure that they are telling the truth. It's just there's no indication that anything was flipped or stripped in 2020. There's just no indication that there was. So uh, I believe it's D. Is it D. Bold, the one that's uh, the company that's suing? Well, there's a couple. There's Smartmatic. Uh, oh, Dominion, Dominion, yes. Uh, Dominion. And I believe D. Bold is somehow involved in some way. There's a multi-billion dollar lawsuit that has currently cost... Lou, Lou, Dobbs, Lou Dobbs, his job over on Fox Lou Nation Dobbs, or Lou Fox Dobbs. News. He, Lou Dobbs lose jobs. Lose news. Lou Dobbs new, lose jobs <laughs> uh, on Fox Business, rather. <laughs> so there is some ramification, ramifications already starting to uh, be seen yeah. by the uh, by the lawsuits. But let's just play. Yeah, this is a, an, an amazing disclaimer. Imagine being this, you know, the old person seeking out this piece of content because you are told they previewed this on shows leading up to this. Um, you know, Mike Lindell is going to drop the absolute proof. This is the evidence that this is what you need to take to the water cooler to explain to your non Trump friend, like how the election was stolen. Uh, but this is how they proceed that documentary. This is the political equivalent of a cryptid lover screaming. I know know what what I I saw! saw. Yeah, exactly. So this is his, I know what I saw moment. Michael James Lindell has purchased the airtime for the broadcast of this program on One America News Network. Mr. Lindell is the sole author and executive producer of this program and is solely and exclusively responsible for its content. Hmm. The topic of this broadcast is the 2020 election. OAN has undertaken its own reporting on this topic. This program is not the product of OAN's reporting. The views, opinions, and claims expressed in this program by Mr. Lindell and other guests, presenters, producers, or advertisers 
are theirs and theirs alone and are not adopted or endorsed by OAN or its owners. Okay. In particular, OAN does not adopt or endorse any statements or opinions in this program regarding the following entities or people. U.S. Dominion, <laughs> Inc. and any related entities. Oh, Smartmatic wow. USA Corp. Oh. Brian Kemp. Brad Raffensberger or Gabriel Sterling. <laughs> Further, the statements and claims expressed in this program are presented at this time as opinions only and are not intended to be taken or interpreted by the viewer as established facts. The results in the 2020 presidential election remain disputed and questioned by millions of Americans uh -huh. who are entitled to hear from all sides in order to help determine what may have happened. Um, literally, it's called... <laughs> and then they... And then it, Absolute proof. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Lindell, the CEO of My Pillow. All right. So it, it is called it, my. It is called absolute proof. It is the yes. idea that they, the disclaimer. It's just. It's, it's just just so funny to me. It's just like everything you're about to see is total bullshit. But then if you just call it absolute <laughs> proof, you're like, well, okay. It, it, you know, it feels like you're about to get on like the most violent roller coaster you've ever been on, <laughs> because the amount of the amount of like this is not safe. This is dangerous. You may you may incur like mental like head injuries, uh, uh. and then they they. The opposite. They show a title card that says absolute proof. Right. Right to Mike Lindell. So Mike Lindell, he is out. He's got his. We'll play a few more clips from his uh, air quotes documentary. Again, it's just the rantings of a well, lunatic. So you might be wondering, like, what is the like, what is the content of this? Absolutely. It, it, is, it is Mike Lindell scratching himself and furiously fidgeting at his desk. And it's like an it's an empty studio except for him sitting at this blue like a, a desk with blue light kind of coming from over his shoulder and uh, just sort of stock globe imagery behind him. You know, it's just really sad. If he wanted to be a radio personality, he could, he could probably just do that. Yeah. But and I don't the, know And why. the fun thing about radio is that people can't see your like cocaine withdrawals. <laughs> he still has them after <laughs> yeah. all these years. He's not great for video because there, of his, because of the issue he might be experiencing currently. And again, there's nothing wrong with his past. It's just, it's his present. That's the, well, I want to meet him when he was doing a bunch of crack. Cause then I would have been like, let's hang out. His, his inclination to be uh, uh, somebody with an addiction does not meld great with this um, hyper tense political time that, uh, and also the conspiracy theory that has been embedded in his mind. Yes. And of course, when it comes to that disclaimer again it is because uh fox especially with lou dobbs being the spokesperson for the conspiracy theory uh, that donald trump should still be president fox has been named in a 2.7 billion dollar defamation lawsuit that's right this that's why this doc uh, is a little was, too hot to handle for some networks well hence the minute and a half long <laughs> disclaimer uh, and the tech company Smartmatic is the yes. main tech company uh, behind the $2.7 billion defamation and then, lawsuit. Oh, oh, no. And actually, in when it comes to all of this, I'm yes. a little bit conflicted because screw them too. Oh, I sure. think they'll be fine. Um, well, but I mean, we'll you, see what you, happens. It, it but is, then again, at is, the same time, Lou Dobbs just It is very strange to like <laughs> smear a business uh, in front of millions and millions of people, and especially one so like emotionally, like an emotionally charged subject like well, this. They, and they also just didn't do it. They didn't. If if this was done without bias, if this was done, and if if Lou Dobbs also did an entire show on Brian Kemp purging the voter rolls in Georgia, and he really was on the front lines of making sure everyone has the right to the franchise and everyone can vote, I would say okay. But it's just so obviously a politically motivated move. And 
it's there's no I'm what I'm you know what I'm saying yes. there's no there's no good motivation behind this yes if, well, if so, Donald Trump would have won based on voter fraud they would have been thrilled and so what this the content of the documentary though is because he you watched it for a couple minutes right Ben yes I watched it for a whopping ten I watched minutes it for one hour you are dumber it than is me the closest I've come to feeling like I was on ayahuasca. <laughs> Really? It is so. Did you vomit in a the, bucket and feel this, good? This might not like watch a little bit of it if, for anyone who's listening. It because the editing makes you feel like you were tripping because it's the same scene, but then they like fade to black constantly for no reason, and then come back to the same conversation, fade to black. So it it gives you this feeling of standing in front of Mike Lindell and slowly blinking in front of him. <laughs> as like, like passing out, yes. waking up. Oh, <laughs> because, like, like and, you're Elizabeth Smart. But he, um, so he, the, bake, the basic thrust of his argument in Absolute Proof is the idea that like these machines, these voting machines are a little bit like Decepticons that work for the Chinese government. Okay, I'm like, onto it. They're I'm evil into it. robots that they have been hacked from foreign sources and are here to do nefarious deeds in America. Mm, okay, um, and well, then, I'm and then sold. part of that, which is a this is a theory we've both heard together, it's uh, that Trump actually got so many votes that it broke some of these machines. So uh. there's a combination of the machines being evil, like communist China uh-huh. property, but also some of them were destroyed by Trump's sheer vote size that they actually got messed up. So they're both like fallible robots right. that miscount and also they're evil Decepticons that are trying to take out uh, the the Transformers. Well, and of course, that is the strange, ironic duality of this conversation. Is it completely inept or is it overcompetent? And again, <laughs> when it comes to the tr- the small truth seed, we do have to keep these companies. And I, I'm just going to say this again. Just We have to hold them accountable. We have to make sure our voting systems are fair. We have to make sure that the paperwork checks out. We should have paper ballots as a backup. I agree with all of that stuff. But what but, they are saying is completely and utterly different. And it's like Trump's own people, Trump's own appointed people have said this is the most secure. Yes. So, vote, you know, uh, election in history. Let's but, just uh, so let's, uh, see, let's hear yeah. a little bit more from this is just sort of like a, a, a palette, just a, a taster. A, OK. An amuse bouche of of what this guy is serving up in this documentary. Mm. The first miracle was on election night and on election night, at 1115 at night. The, the algorithms of these machines broke, basically broke. And I'll, this will be explained during this show. He keeps saying but that. they broke. But what that means is Donald Trump got so many more millions of votes that they didn't expect that they had, they're going to have to go recalibrate, right? So that's why all these states shut down. No, it's just not, though. It's because they were just like, go home and go to bed and come back at 8 a.m. and finish well, counting. something that he does throughout this documentary is he flashes behind him on the two screens, behind, the two monitors, he flashes what seems to be self-made documents with random numbers on them. And then he'll circle numbers, like kind of almost like Glenn Beck with the chalkboard in the back yes. of the day. He, like, he just sort of circles numbers and says... Huh? How about this one? How about this one? Seems a little high on this side and a little bit low on this one. It's like that thing that's in uh, this reference no one's going to get, but in Union Square in in, uh, Manhattan, that I don't know what those numbers are. That is a clock. That's a clock? Yeah. Okay. Well, so there's a, if you go to Union Square in New York. And by the way, I'm not stupid. It doesn't look like a clock. It doesn't look like a clock. But if you, so there's a a series of panels with numbers that constantly are like going up. And uh, at first, the the joke that I got played was they, that I was told that that was the debt clock. So it, oh, I, thought, I thought that, that was the running tally going up ever 
like I think speeding that's too upwards. low for our deck clock. I, I thought that was a deck clock, so it was supposed to fill you with like dread and terror as hmm. you got out of the subway and saw how much debt our country's in. <laughs> so if I, I, I thought that was real for like a year until I realized it was just a like a literal clock. Okay. Uh, um. But so uh, again, with this documentary, another thing that Mike Lindell employs is he has a cast of guests that are supposed experts on various subjects. Okay. But what you find out is that this is kind of like the Legion of Doom for all the losers in the world. Because uh, one of the guys, one of the guys is the discredited inventor of emails, uh, Dr. Shiva. I saw this on Twitter when I was on it for about four and a half minutes. So he did not invent email. No, he did not invent email. Well, but he says that he did. Well, so that's who, the po- who, who that's definitely that? part of the problem. Yeah, this seems to be like um, a group of liars, guys who like to lie and who rely on lying. Uh, but he ran for office in Massachusetts. How do you do? He lost, and you know how he lost? Why? Cheating in the election. He? Oh, he, he cheated? No, the his opponent cheated. Did they cheat? Well, according to the inventor of emails, so if you... Uh, you got the inventor of email and the inventor of pillows talking to each other. Oh my goodness! And if this looks like it, perhaps is a just a collection of people who have lost things and have not really got over it. <laughs> oh, all right. Because another one of his guests is this guy who is just sort of like a hollow suit of a person named Russ Ramsland, and I was like, wow, this guy is not real. Like this guy just seems like a hollow, like came out of a goo vat for Republican uh, politicians. And I went to his Twitter account. And I was like, okay, let me see if this guy is for real. Let me let me let me check this guy out. Yeah. So if you go to Russ Ramsland's website that is listed Ramsland's on, you go to his Congress. Twitter and you go to his Ram, his his website that he has posted, Ramslandforcongress.com. This is his website. And let me just read some of the things on Ramslandforcongress.com. Real Pokies Australia. That's something you can go to. What's a real pokey? Well, let's check it out. Let's real see what Pokies we got here. Australia. Um, top Aussie, top Aussie Pokies. Oh, it's 2020 a casino co- thing. Casino games. Okay. That's and an And then ad. below that, you got Joker Room, best service in Australia. Sign up and get two hundred percent. Not bad. Not so bad. That's an ad. What's um, this one? I don't really know about the what's, how. What does this do? How does this have to do with his run for Congress? Though? What does Pastor Warnock? What's the Ooh. Pastor Warnock wife? Pastor, Pastor Warnock, Warnock wife is, is this is a menu selection you can you can click on this on ramslandforcongress.com so we're going to Pastor Warnock. All right. It does nothing, nothing works. Okay. So, well, so his website like, doesn't work. He's like not a real person. I see. He I, I I think this might be a guy that ran for office in some like small district in Texas. He lost and now he's in the losers club that believes that all losers lose because of cheating. Well, isn't that something? Uh, it seems like he might be making excuses for some of his own shortcomings, and none of this is done without actual consequence. The American people so far have paid $519 million uh, of our hard-earned taxpayer dollars, which it is hard-earned taxpayer dollars. And uh, this also obviously helped spark what happened on uh, January 6th. They, they just laid the officer uh, that was the murdered by the crowd. They just laid him to rest. Um this past week. Uh, so this, this narrative, it's comical because it's coming from the sweaty, weird, my pillow guy, <laughs> but the more radicalized people who listen to this, they can do some I scary really ass don't stuff. I understand how the people that are receiving this information are synthesizing it in their head to be like comprehensible though, because none of what he says makes well, any let's sense. Play let's some play more another. Let's, let's just get. Yeah. Let's dip our toe in again. But here's the big thing, the big miracle. If they would have done that, 
if they would have done that and said, you know what, we can't count these, Mr. Trump wins, Donald Trump wins, okay, then we wouldn't be where we're at right now. Because the biggest thing against humanity and our country is this attack through these machines. They got this opened up, this revealed the, the machines to where we're at right now. So what you're gonna watch during this show is 100% proof that the big thing was the theft by these other countries that came in to attack our country through these machines that are made to steal elections. Every election going forward in history, if these things would have happened, these two, and we, wouldn't have, we would have never known, every single vote you would have ever made wouldn't have mattered. Somebody else would have made that vote. And we've all seen in this past month, you think it was a communist coming in and taking this over with people here. This is an attack not only on other, this, so those this, other countries with communism, great but they had domestic traitors right here in our country. Whatever's going on right now, we're seeing it. They're suppressing cancel culture. They're trying to cancel <laughs> us all out. Stock I just footage. see churches. We got a little stamp Christian churches, that says they're canceled. being attacked right now. People on social media, anyone that speaks up, they're going, you can't say that. <laughs> You're gone. It's like they're right now they're doing whack-a-mole because they know <laughs> they knew they were so, so close. When he says All right. when he said uh, uh, they're playing whack-a-mole, you'll never guess what came on screen. It was indeed it was stock indeed footage stock of, footage of someone playing whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole, indeed. Who doesn't like a little whack-a-mole? Um you know, <laughs> he definitely believes, I suppose, what he is saying, I guess. I actually yes, I do I do believe um, that. I almost feel bad for him in a way because, and I and I feel bad for I, I don't feel bad for him in another sense. He is driving people insane, and I feel my my sympathy does go to people who might not be inter- internet literate, who might be a little bit more gullible. You imagine if you really believe that's true, the conundrum that that would put you in, the mental health decline that yeah, that would no, e- it, lead to, and it really is unfortunate and then of course we also have again as i mentioned the economic toll and what it, what this looks like or what this rhetoric looks like in reality so this is according to michael rapic he is the superintendent of the utah highway patrol uh, he says they spent two hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars on january 17th to deploy 300 troopers to the state capitol after threats of an armed siege by trump supporters Uh, That was, of course, ahead of the Biden inauguration. He goes on to say, it is an incredible amount of money to spend. Other states have spent even more, and officials are beginning to draft new security budgets. Uh, The cost to the federal government continues to grow daily as thousands of National Guard troops patrol Washington. And uh, lawmakers think they might have to be there permanently. The 25,000 troops that were deployed in Washington traveled on military planes and stayed in local hotels. I hope that they aren't there permanently. It is strange. I also don't want this to be used as an excuse for people in power to further distance themselves from constituents. Sure. You know, because it's like, yeah, that was horrible. But at the same time, do we want like a total, I want to have acts. I'm a nerd and I want to go to Washington, D.C. and get close to the Capitol. And I want to, but I also understand we have to have security. I'm sure that we can marry these two and have both security and the ability to still like theoretically be close to our legislators i think we might be that actually is going to be the opposite going forward i feel like because 
I mean, just going back to, you said, you know, oh, I feel bad for the people who aren't so savvy. It's like, it is actually quite difficult to get OAN. Do you know what I mean? So people have to actually really claw to get that information. It's and so not, there's not yeah. it's almost not so passive as we we might believe. People are no, intentionally yes. trying to seek this stuff out and um I don't feel bad for those people. Yeah, I guess feel bad it might not be the right term. I, I and empathetic isn't even really the right term. I guess sad. But I just feel sad but for the reason them, I bring but at the same up, time they at the same time, I understand that yeah. they look at us like we can unzip, like we unzip at night as lizard people. Yes. So I understand they don't share the same like, um, they don't share the same understanding necessarily of like, why do people believe certain things or because they're so sheep dipped in all of this that I they can lead them to be dangerous. But I, I guess I feel more bad for the family and friends of those people who once had yeah, that's, a family that's totally member fair. or a friend, but and then they've my, gone nuts. My point, sort of going back to what you said about like be, getting close to your legislators, I think we're yeah entering a new age of um, people are actively... We're like back in the 60s. You know, like we're about... I think people are a little bit more political assassination-minded now, obviously. Uh, and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene representing the face of conservatism... It does not bode well for the safety of uh, people in the house. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a special case, and I do want to be careful because I hated what they the, the what the right did with the left was they painted the entire Democratic Party to be, you know, what was it? I hate what they call them the the four horsewomen or something. AOC and and uh, the squad, t- the squad, yeah, Talib, and the, so they painted the entire left to be those people. And as I talked about in 2018, the majority of seats that the Democrats won were moderate House seats, and that is why they were able to win and control the House. It was the moderate votes that were the mass majority of the Democratic Party. So I don't want to paint all of Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene because I know that there are many millions that aren't. So I want to be careful of, con- but- of constituents, but. But she is crazy Marjorie and she Taylor needs Green to be gone. gave a non-apology after she was removed from the committee that she was on. And, uh, and again, only, I believe, 11 Republicans. Yes. Well, I, so I, and then yeah. the rest of the Republicans. They don't do her, themselves any freaking favors. The rest favors. of the Republicans gave her a standing ovation. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's <sighs> the reality of it is yeah. that she does represent quite a large part of that party now. Right, right. And people are looking to her as a signpost for the future. Yes. Yes. And if you are the Republican Party people are just going to constantly use her as like a battering ram to show the insanity of said party. So it is in your best interest just to get rid of her. But of course uh, well, she th- was elected and the people are going to have a choice to make. You Thankfully know, it's only the house. So it's only a two year term. So um, we'll see if she gets reelected. I, <laughs> then, I, I then think it's something that uh, Trump taught all of these politicians is if you squeal more, like if you like, if you scream in agony about your like your victimship, uh, you will get more fundraising dollars. Well, there's nothing more ironic than someone who says uh, censored on their mask as they're speaking in front of Congress, uh, as they are also a member of the House of Representatives. I don't think that she is being censored. And again, social media, these people are conflating private enterprise and uh, these companies. If they want to kick you off, they can kick you off. Hell, I believe we've had some issues ourselves here on the network. Oh, what? How do you say? How do you mean? With Twitch. What do you mean? With YouTube. What do you mean? We're gonna get kicked off of everything. The, ball, the Baldo? <laughs> that was Henry. I didn't. I didn't do I that. Know, anyway. We didn't even cause an insurrection. and We got kicked off. 
A picture of a what was it? What was the ball dough? Yeah, it's just testicles inside of a a, a, a dough. It could be a uh, medical apparatus. I think it was medical or well, sexual. What's the difference nowadays? I was. Huh? I. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Are you a doctor? No, no, I'm an escort." In California, state officials estimated that they spent 19 million bucks deploying a thousand National Guard troops. Uh, that was from January 14th to January 21st to protect the state capitals. This is according to uh, the California Department of Finance spokesperson, H.D. Palmer. They say that's a lot of money, even by California standards, for one week's worth of work. But it, it goes on to say, but it was necessary work to make sure we didn't see the damage that could have occurred. And we had a crowd that was bent on doing damage to the building. Of course, again, ironically... These are people who were once screaming about our statues, Robert E. Lee statues. I heard they took no, away the going after the that. Jason statue from the bottom we, of Camp Crystal Lake. We talked about lake monsters on last podcast on the left this week. It's not Camp, it's not Crystal Lake. Apparently, it's some other lake. But there was a Jason statue, it was life size, which means it was about my size, and it was in the bottom of the uh, of the lake. But they took it out um, because we don't have any fun. Because there's no fun allowed. The well, fun I, police came. They put. They took their fun guns and then they shot that Jason and they took him out of that water. And, no, I think. Hey, well, but now you have Jason on land. So hey, I think jokes what on you. We're finding is that uh, historical documents have shown that Jason did fight on the side of slavery. No, I do not believe that was true. Jason's a Yankee. No, he. Where is Crystal Lake? He he's a carpetbagger. Oh my God! If you ever accuse him of being Hillary Clinton again, <laughs> Jason is a carpetbagger. You bastard! All right, well, let's play a little bit more. Do we have one more clip? Yeah, I would love to play more. Let's let's play so there, some more Mike Mike Lindell. So let's another, play some more of the poisoning yes. of the American people. But thankfully, uh, we're going to be here and we're going to we're going to nullify the poison. There's a well. Also, there's an amazing thing where it, it, during these interviews with his guests, he whoever is whatever 20 year old is helping him do this oh you think it's a 20 year old i think it's some young misguided person okay. honestly or it's somebody chained to a wall in some kind of studio <laughs> because they be. during the skype interviews with his guests he like they'll cut to a fly on the wall camera where it's like a side shot of mike lindell's face but not the guest at all uh, so it, there's some very interesting directorial choices. Okay. This whole movie is like a director's cut of a of a much longer movie. Um, but so he's like in one of these scenes, he's like interviewing an expert who's just a he's just a faceless goop in a suit. Okay. Um, and it looks like the guy is in a um, like a closed IKEA, and he's just like yeah. turned on a ring light in this closed in the office to, a section a, of a IKEA. Maybe a WeWork. But All the right. thing a thing he does in this uh, is he'll play a lot of like spooky music under points that, he, that are being made that are like supposed to be big revelatory things. But so here's an example of that. The money on the front side to, wow. to make sure the election was gone. The same thing with China. If right. China could avoid the U.S. coming to Taiwan's defense, and we've seen indications of that already, and if China could avoid uh, having to fight a, oh, a campaign to protect their man-made islands to extend their territorial waters into uh, international navigable waterways... If they could invest a billion dollars, Ben, are you scared? To do that versus fighting. I mean, a the war, music is scary. Well, they've made a pretty good investment, and right. all the money that they've uh, made into the Biden family, um, all the money that they've made and <laughs> invested into U.S. universities, Mike Lindell's hands are going crazy. Up, uh, our medical and our technical intellectual property, um, stealing a lot more than they bought. Um, they are they are fighting a war, and people just don't realize that we're under attack. Okay. And what's one more? Let's do one more. Let's of this. do one more. 
<laughs> this is just him saying the word They're, cyberly. They, they also note 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 how they note how they conflate multiple issues. Like no one can stay focused on no. the topic because the topic is so well, is so um it, it's it's so shallow. Yeah. So you have to have tangential well, it, co- it conversations. Really, you know what it, it reminded me of? Do you remember when UCB did like? 24-hour improv oh, festivals. How, how could I forget? Do you know the, what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about, yes, though? Yes, of course. Like, where you'd show up at 3 in the morning. I know you didn't do this. I've been to one of no, them. No, I, I went to one. Um, you show up at 3 in the morning, and it's yeah. this this festival that UCB used to do where it was just 24 hours of people doing improv, and they yeah. would just tag in when somebody would get tired. And it, you'd go at, like, 3 in the morning, and the people on stage would just appear to be, like, in a trance, just sort of saying stuff and then reacting without really, there's no scene really. It's just people right. who are exhausted and just spouting words that anything that comes to mind. Right. But that really is what these interviews feel like. But here's, here's another clip uh, where uh, Mike Lindell uses the word cyberly. Uh, and you're saying that 27 states use this and the servers are overseas. So these can go over there and they can change the vote to anything they want and send it back cyberly. <laughs> By cyber, correct. Wow. I actually like the word. I like. You know what's weird? I actually. It's kind of like even sex. It's like sexy. A sleep deprived, psychotic, completely out of his mind, Mike Lindell. Cyberly, cyberly is really a great. And there's there's an amazing thing that happens because people he lets his guests talk for like. 15, 20 minute stretches at a time. And the, uh, the entire time he just kind of goes, wow. Wow. That's the sign of a good interview. Wow. But my thing is like, if I was being, if I was being shown or told absolute proof of an election fraud that changed the course of history, I don't know if my reaction would be like, right, right. Sure. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, I think that's why think these I... state capitals have so much freaking National Guard all around them, because they are also right. They're like, well, if someone actually believes that, they should storm the Capitol. Um, but of course, it that's did the, not I happen. I mean, honestly, that is the case, so, though. If, that's this, the problem. if you do believe this, you must have like fire bells well, ringing. This is, you know, and again, we're going to get to our interview here in one second um, with Jessica Donati, author of Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. But that is, again... Maybe it's because it's the Super Bowl Sunday. But when you look at somebody, and I reference this all the time, but you look at the Comet Pizza, you you listen to him as he's driving, the guy who went to Comet Pizza with the gun, yeah. you listen to him talking, and if he his heart is literally trying to stop a pedophile ring. And so you're like, okay, that it would be bad. And these people's hearts, I guess if they really believe this, perhaps it... it I, it's just this is that's why I hate him so much. Yeah, because he he has to know someone. Well, he know like he sees all the edits where he makes mistakes. Like when you are the creator, you do know. Yeah, you know how it's made to I some mean, extent. To some extent. To some extent. Does he really believe this stuff? I don't actually <laughs> know. I I really don't know. I really, I, I would like to hear an expert's opinion on this guy's like whole thing or is this nothing more than this is his political way in very similar like is absolute proof the air quotes documentary is this the birtherism for 2022 oh absolutely is this birtherism 2024 like is this just the new conspiracy that then you can use this to catapult yourself in the political zeitgeist i think this is the this is like the palinko pin that you as a republican politician now when you hit this you go left or you go right and you that's going to decide the fate of your career well and and uh, just quickly here because you know these poll numbers are uh, ever moving 
But these are the recent poll numbers. Of, we'll just focus on the Republicans here. Just uh, Not that the Democrats, we all know they're not freaking perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And we're going to talk about what the Biden administration, uh, what their foreign policy is going to look like now that we're sort of starting to see it uh, evolve in front of our eyes. But let's just talk about the people on the right in this case when it comes to all this election craziness. These eight congressional Republicans are fairly unpopular, but let's go through some of the lists. Politician Ted Cruz, unfavorable 45%, favorable 34%. Mitch McConnell has 19% favorability, <laughs> but you know who has uh, just just slightly less? M Marjorie Taylor Greene at 15%. But then you also have people like Liz Cheney, who is only at 27%. Like the And Liz Cheney, of course, being sort of the key spokesperson for the rational wing of the for Republican the, Party, on, even lost. though she's a, the yeah. daughter of a war criminal, probably right. the worst human being that's ever lived. And I have no love for Liz Cheney whatsoever. Liz Cheney, of course, Wyoming royalty, but she represents parts of the Republican Party now that is like, no, I think we just have to move on. The election was the election. And because of that, she has been absolutely destroyed by the Republican Party. Many polls show that Marjorie Taylor Greene actually is more liked than Liz Cheney within the Republican Party. So, anyway, and again, Marjorie Taylor Greene is um, a proponent of QAnon, and of course, uh, she, Lauren Bobert, Lauren Lauren Bobert, though she is, uh, she's not quite as liked as Marjorie Taylor Greene. And really, they have to start butting heads here. They're the two. They're they're their little. I guess where they get along. I don't freaking know what they do. You imagine hanging out with those two, having some drinks. That could be kind of fun, actually. Well, it's kind of crazy to think that there might be like, um, kind of like a schism within QAnon. I'm sure there's like different, you know, uh, like New Testament versus Old Testament versions well, right. of QAnon. Oh and there's going to be those kind of conflicts between these, I mean, insane NPC characters yes. <laughs> about what what is the correct way to, um, I guess, name the kind of uh, pedophile uh, Satanist cabal that is at work. It's like they probably will agree on some sort of baseline mm -hmm. of this story, but then it will actually kind of fracture off and it'll be uh, absolutely awful. Yeah. And when I say it would be fun to have drinks with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, it would be fun to, uh, first of all, if they were never elected. And number two, if you just randomly walked into a podunk bar, so there's nothing more fun than a good old podunk bar, and they just were screaming conspiracy theory. <laughs> I would. What I'm saying is I would sit there and I would sip my beer and I would uh, I would say, who needs TV? Oh, yeah. Because this is entertaining. But uh, now it's um, they're in the legislature. Yeah. So the they thing. can control your life. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah. They're not like um, they're not like swaying back and forth at a dartboard. They're right. actually like controlling. They, they have, you know, their hands on the levers of power. Yeah. 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 So, so it's so kind it's, of an interesting thing about and, that. Uh, and not just that, as we're seeing with the just it's seemingly disappearing backbone of whatever the rational I don't even know what the I don't know what the rational Republican Party looks like anymore. I I, I have no freaking idea. We don't yeah, where are they? I don't I, know. I have I no know. idea. And I'm not sure anyway. It's I guess a, Mitt Romney is the the rational Republican now. I, I guess. You I know, know, I watched the documentary Mitt and I have to say he he is that. He man, is who he says he is. I got to say the man knows how to iron a shirt. I By actually kind of I like that scene. My god. Actually the documentary Mitt does show him as a human being. It's just very he is he is what he is. It's very boring to me. He is like I'm a, watching he, that is just very he boring. He is like a character in Hitman 3. Like he uh like one of these just like a butler in the, in the Hitman you 3 know, universe. He he's a total teetotaler obviously. Like he really does live the Mormon rule and laws and stuff. So but you know he's got to get like he's got to 
He's got to do like rope suspension or something. There has you to be something to, like there has to be something inside of his body that is just like causing him there pain ever been, for pleasure. Has there ever been a human man that at the end of their life there wasn't some like awful thing that they found about them? Like yeah. some or like some kind of like perverse Mr. Hidden Mr. Rogers. Thing? Mr. Rogers. I think we're still looking. We're still no, we're not we're looking. Still it's done. It would have no. Don't D- even. Dinesh D'Souza is on the is on D- the case it, of trying no, to. No, don't do it. <laughs> next thing, if you get Lindell on it, Dinesh D'Souza, by the way, actually almost looks like a journalist next to Mike Lindell. That is actually. I wish. I kind of want to see them apply this same kind of scrutinous eye to other like chapters of history. Like I, I would like to see this kind of conspiracy thought about old, old, old stuff. Because that would be kind of at least funny and remote. I don't know. I think they're just going to change the history books. If if Abraham Lincoln was actually a vampire hunter, that would be very interesting. And I would. I watched a documentary on it. I would condone. You did watch a doc. You watched Absolute Proof about (laughs) Abraham Lincoln uh, hunting vampires. Yeah, it was called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And he he did hunt. Simple, simple. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. All right, everyone. Now it is time for my conversation with journalist Jessica Donati. She is the author of the awesome book, Eagle Down. We'll be talking all about foreign policy under the Joe Biden administration. I would assume many things will change from whatever foreign policy we had over the past four years. So, Jessica, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So I know you were embedded in Afghanistan for four years. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Obviously, we are still in the midst of the longest war in American history. It's not covered on media whatsoever any longer. I suppose they don't have a monetary gain in covering it, so they've decided to stop. Of course, they were... uh, very enthusiastic earlier in the aughts when it comes to getting us into war. And then, of course, things soured as the war does what war does and uh, devastated an entire region, including uh, America and our psyche and our economic abilities. So can we talk a little bit about what experiences you had in Afghanistan over those four years? What years were you there and how has that shaped your view now of how foreign policy, American especially, or Western foreign policy, impacts the world? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of a lot of questions. So um, I first got there in 2012. Um, I had just uh, covered the uh, revolution in Libya, or the uprising there, and uh, I found that I was interested in that kind of work. And yeah. so when I went there in 2012... I already have to stop you. I'm so sorry. This is why it's going to take forever for you to speak. And I'm, I apologize. When it comes to Libya, obviously, the overthrow of Gaddafi, 
Hillary Clinton's main uh, claim to fame. Did it hurt her in 2016? Perhaps. I believe that Gaddafi was a horrible person. I don't think we helped the region whatsoever by getting rid of him. But can you talk about that experience, how strange that is? We're only eight years removed, and it seems like it's might as well be talking about World War II history. The overthrow of Gaddafi and the amount of just turmoil that that caused in that region. Can you talk about that? Gaddafi Gaddafi was overthrown in 2011. Okay. So actually 10 years ago. Wow. But um, uh, yeah, so it's quite, it's quite a while. Um, I think when I was, when I was there in Libya, I had never covered a war before and I found it quite terrifying in the, in the first few days. And as I got used to it, um, the thing that was striking about the Libyan situation compared to the one in Afghanistan was that initially in Libya, there was a lot of enthusiasm for foreigners, for the intervention. You know, you'd be walking in the streets and people would come up to you saying, oh, you know, have you heard? I want to tell you my story. You know, for 40 years, we've been silenced. And so right. there was a lot of enthusiasm. And so it was hard in those early months not to get swept up with that kind of enthusiasm for getting rid of Gaddafi. Right. Obviously, the reality was that his removal left this kind of um, void in which all these different tribes and interests began to compete with each other. And that's why you have the horrible civil war that you see now. Right. Um, and that the uh, much more senior uh, journalists that had covered more than one conflict at that point already saw that. But because I was quite young at the time, um, I naively thought, you know, well, you know, great future. And obviously yeah. that didn't happen. Um, Did you see the change in the people of Libya? Because you're right. I mean, this is one of the more difficult things that you have to kind of marry in your mind where you look at somebody like Gaddafi. I have the same sort of thoughts about Saddam Hussein. These very tribal regions, these areas that have a lot of um, re- religious differences, it's not ha- as homogenous as some other successful countries might be. And you see these leaders and you're like, they're so brutal and it, like the crackdowns and, you know, the lack of freedoms and stuff. And so I understand the people must have been thrilled when he was gone. But then it's like, what what did they begin to see once he was gone? Not that he was good by any stretch of the imagination, um, but some of the troubles that were going to be in the lie ahead. How long did that take before they were like, oh, this isn't going to be some great smooth transition? It was really, really fast. I mean, I remember when he was when he was killed, they had his body stored in this kind of great big fridge freezer alongside, uh, I think, two of his sons. And people from Mizrata, which was the town, were queuing to just see his body and to see that he had really died. And, you know, they were little kids, you know, it was like a family thing. People would go in like very tense and then leave kind of feeling kind of relaxed because everybody in Libya had suffered under him. Everyone had had a relative that had been locked up or disappeared. So there was a lot of suffering, but it changed really, really fast. We, we saw a lot of the footage, and obviously we're just leading up to your experience in Afghanistan, but it all works together because the U.S. is behind a lot of stuff. I call it, uh, you know, what we do here. Um, when it comes to the people that, that were really upset with Gaddafi, it, it looked like there was a lot of rural folks. Um, is that safe to say? Or like who in the country really didn't like him? 
because we looked at the footage and all of a sudden like farmers had like u.s weapons but like the old version we always kind of like like i was the youngest of of three boys so we always kind of have the hand-me-downs but in the military it's hand-me-down weapons and all of a sudden everyone had you know old school what looks like we were fighting you know the afghanistan in the 80s or whatever you know they discovered big warehouses uh that that gaddafi had where he had been sort of stockpiling vehicles okay. and weapons. and so when um so when the rebels kind of pick these up um, yeah, I mean, it flooded not just Libya, but the entire sort of region, which is why one of the reasons why you see an increase in violence in the Sahel region as well. That's interesting. So they were actually stored. So Gaddafi's government bought them from the United States. Is that right? And then from there, they were looted, I guess, or what? Because I could be very wrong about that. I trust me, I could be very wrong about a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't I can't I can't even say that I remember where the where the weapons came from. But I remember that there were a lot of pickup trucks with these kind of like yeah. flame painted onto the sides. And everybody seemed to have those and drive around with those and sort of AKs in the back. And you're just living in this. I mean, it seems like a Mad Max world. How did you um, I mean, how did you survive in that yourself as a journalist? I mean, it was very, it was very chaotic at the time. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, I don't know how I did survive. I mean, I probably didn't deserve to because I did a lot of stupid things when I was there because I, I took risks that I shouldn't have done. Um, but you, I mean, you did, you arrived and previous journalists had been there before you and you would pick up on their contacts and you would, you know, just, yeah, you would just chase whatever you found interesting. And there were a lot of interesting stories at the time. What was a risk that you did where you were like, I can't believe like that we all have those experiences in life that we survived. And when you think about it and you almost get more nervous in hindsight, being like, how did I survive that again? Like, was there something that you did where afterwards you were like, like touching yourself being like, I can't believe I'm still freaking here. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of things uh, that, that I did. I mean, you would be you'd meet people and we didn't have any security. So you would meet somebody oh and you would be kind of in their in their hands. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one one thing was one evening I had to meet a, a source in a different hotel in Tripoli. So I got into a taxi uh, because the one security advisor that Reuters had for the entire um, the entire uh, co- company there was he's like, yeah, I get in a taxi. So I did. Okay. Uh, and the taxi sort of missed my turning, missed the second turning. And then I had like this horrible feeling oh my in my God. stomach where I just knew that like he wasn't going to take me to where I wanted to go. And so we went sort of off this on this highway and um, I oh opened the door of the car thinking I was going to throw myself out of the car, as you see in movies. But the car is moving really fast. So obviously yeah. that seemed like such a great idea. So I left the door swinging and then I kind of lunged for the wheel and he's veered off the side of the road and I um, got out that way. And oh then, my um, God, what was yeah. he, what was the motivation? What was the end game there? I mean, I don't know. I had visions of like, you know, orange jumpsuit, you know, journalists. Oh my God. But I don't think it was that. I think it was probably just a sex crime. You know, it was probably opportunistic, you know, like woman, like, you know, and we had been chatting at the beginning. So I think he just, you know, changed his mind halfway through when he's like, well, you know, maybe this would be more entertaining. You know, I don't know. I don't. Oh my freaking Lord. But, you know, you mentioned the orange jumpsuits and we are sort of removed from this now, but uh, in the era of uh, Daniel Pearl, and uh, just the amount of uh, chaos in that region. I mean, obviously, we're talking about two totally different regions with Libya and and we'll get to Afghanistan here. But journalists were really on the front lines. And and uh, we just 
those stories about uh, being captured. I mean, my God, you're so freaking not to toot not to toot your horn, but you're very brave um, because I would have uh, not gotten into the cab. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't have gone to Libya. So there we go. That's the main difference between you and I. So Jessica Donati, we are speaking with her. She is an author of the book Eagle Down. Check out this book. It is super exciting. It is Eagle Down: The Last Special Forces Fighting Within or Fighting the forever war. Um, so let's do, let's move on. So you have your experience in Libya. You're coming out of there. I would assume that, can you just elevator pitch, Jessica goes into Libya versus Jessica coming out of Libya. What were some of those experiences? Were you a hardened journalist after seeing what uh, the pre-Civil War world looks like? No, I mean, for me, it was like, it's like seeing the world suddenly in a lot more kind of intense color, right? Because you see the most extreme sides of human nature when you're in a, in a place like that. And coming as I did from Italy, a fairly kind of, I came from Rome, a very boring place to grow up, nothing ever happened. And so, you know, it was, it was really eye-opening. And when I went back to my job at Reuters uh, covering oil, um, you know, it was dull compared to what I had seen there. Uh, yeah. And so I asked to go to Iraq and they said, well, we don't really need anyone in Iraq, but you could go to Afghanistan. And okay. uh, this was in 2012. And I was like, mm, okay. Didn't even really know the war in Afghanistan was still going on, you know, at that point. And then, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, here I am. That is, yes, absolutely. So you go to Afghanistan and you don't know the war is still happening. I mean, obviously, I know that we all know that there was a conflict happening, but there was a reason that not a lot of people thought about Afghanistan because, again, it wasn't being covered. It wasn't being digested nearly uh, as much as what was happening in Iraq or other places uh, in the world. So can you explain Afghanistan? You get there. What is this experience like as a journalist? Were you were you a little shocked or were did you did you see what you expected to see? What like can you just give our audience eyes on the ground? Like you're a journalist, you get to Afghanistan. What the hell is happening? Well, I mean, compared to Libya, it was a much more organized war. Uh, whereas like Libya was crazy, you know, you never knew who controlled what. Like in Afghanistan, the war had been going on at that point for more than 10 years. So they were pro. They were like, we know how to do this. We take time out. We have lunch. Right, exactly. They had, you know, <laughs> there were like nice restaurants that you could go to or like, you know, fairly nice restaurants that you could go to. Um, you know, there were bars, there was a nightlife, there were parties, you know, there were all, the, you know, it was very kind wow. of established. And, and you, all you of these things, I'm sorry to interrupt, but all of these things coexisting with an ongoing war. That's right, because when you think of a war, you kind of imagine like bullets flying all yeah. the time. The reality is, especially in Kabul at that time, it's totally different now. And it changed over the, the time that I was there. But at that point in Kabul was really quite safe. So you could, I mean, there were bombs now and then, but you kind of lived with those. Uh, and there, it was all very focused on the drawdown. The U.S. had just surged all the way up to like 100,000 troops the previous right. year. And then it was this kind of mad dash to draw them all back down right. in time for this 2014 deadline that the Obama administration had set themselves. What What do you think? Because I know that was one of the issues with the Obama foreign policy was the sort of the deadline. It, a lot of criticism being like, well, this gives the enemy the exact date and time when we leave so they can chill out and come back when we go. What was uh, the politics of that? Or, I mean, I don't know, you, you don't have to speak about the politics of it, but how did the politics 
um, manifest themselves on the ground? What did that? What were the ramifications of those policy decisions? When I remember the surge, and then obviously letting people know, well, these troops are going to be gone in a year. You know, what was like? How did people respond there to these policy? Uh, for us, it's simply words on a piece of paper, and for them, we've just created a new life for them. I mean, I think it depends which side of the war that you were on, you know, as an Afghan. But for a, for a lot of Afghans, at least the Afghans have been working alongside the U.S. and U.S. allies. It was, you know, extremely concerning to, to know that everybody was going. And so people started to hedge for, mm. you know, the time for when the U.S. would be gone. But right? if you're if you're like an, an Afghan soldier and you're being paid two hundred dollars to sit on a checkpoint, you know, a month. You know, you're not really going to risk your life for a government that tomorrow might not be there because if the U.S. is gone, the government's going to be gone too. Right. And so it's very destabilizing. On the other hand, you know, you also can't stay forever, right? Or I mean, I mean, I guess they could stay forever, but <laughs> yeah. Every, I mean, since then, there's always been a sort of delayed deadline. There's always been this kind of uh, sort of, I don't know, like sort of hanging over the over Afghanistan, waiting for the US to leave and then for them yeah. to have to kind of find a future without uh, without them. What is the mood of a country that is so destabilized and so really living at the whim of, in many ways, American politics, which, as we know, can be batshit insane? Uh, what is the mood of a nation like that? Because, you know, for us, we 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 fancy ourselves very autonomous in you know here in the states in America we're very autonomous in our this is the the, the rhetoric or the branding you 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 live free you you can do you can be whatever you want to be and then over in Afghanistan I mean it must have been quite different I mean there is like it depends a lot where you are in Afghanistan as well because you know Kabul especially even if you go to Kabul now like you'll find cafes a bit like you know Starbucks where people go and get coffee and they hang out and you'll even see men and women together which is kind of unthinkable anywhere else mm. and there is genuinely a generation of Afghans that having grown up under US kind of influence and US yeah. values They've become very westernized, you know, and mm. you see that in sort of the Afghan women going to university and taking on all kinds of sort of more traditionally Western sort of jobs. Whereas, you know, other parts of Afghanistan, which haven't had that kind of influence, life hasn't changed much there. Not during the Taliban, not before the Taliban, not since the Taliban. There were always, you know, burqas. There were always women who were not allowed to leave the home. So I think it depends sort of where you were. So even with the amount of resentment, which I would assume that people must have, I mean, everything has been sort of stripped away or tore away from them. Um, even with the, they, I guess the question is, did you notice conflicting views of America? Because you're right, like America, when it comes to our branding, when it comes to our clothes, when it comes to our culture, there's some really cool shit about America that we all love. And that's why I have my pickup truck and I love America and I listen to country music. Um but then you also have the duality where you have them coming in and, and changing your culture. Can you explain how they were able to sort of live with that? And, and it, it must have caused talking about generational rifts. I mean, I can't there must be almost like a ring of a tree. There has to be like, oh, that's the war generation of kids that have now grown under a U.S. occupation, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 depends. I mean, it, it, again, like if there is a lot of resentment because you know there are a lot of people who have lost family members and this and that in air, you know, in airstrikes, which is a huge problem. You know, the the U.S. especially in sort of the earlier years when they were much more active on the battlefield, you know, they were being used by one sort of rival sort of clan against another to take out uh, rivals in that sense. Mm. So I mean, there is a huge amount of, of resentment. It's a very, it's a very mixed bag. I think the, the legacy, but, but I mean, everybody is frustrated because while there is this kind of uncertainty over wh whether the U S will stay or go, people really cannot get along with get on with their lives, I suppose. Right. So you're in Afghanistan. This is 2011, 2012, 2013 to 2014, right? Two, on now on to 17. I lived there for four years in the end. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. 12, I came back in 13 and lived there. In 12, it was just a trip. Okay. So can you explain some of the differences when you landed as opposed to when you left for the first time? Did you, or did you... Um, just did, did you notice a sort of maturation of what the U.S. involvement is there? Did you notice how people have sort of lived with it or did many people, I would assume, you know, went to fight against it? What was what was your experience just as far as this four years of war that you have to live with? So you have to evolve as a as a community and as a group. I mean, what what I most noticed, I mean, uh, particularly as I lived in Kabul and traveled to various places, but I mean, in Kabul, you saw a really sort of steep downward trajectory. You know, when I said, as I first, as I said, when I got there, you know, you could go out to, there were like some bars, you know, there were restaurants mm -hmm. and there was kind of a nightlife. And uh, that sort of clashed when one of the restaurants was attacked and, um, and uh, 20, 20, 22, 24 people were killed. And that kind of put an end to, I guess, the idea that, you know, like or the denial, I suppose, that right. like that have this life alongside the war. And things just got worse. I mean, every year things things got worse in Kabul. You know, there would be, especially during sort of the 2014 election, that every day, you know, something would blow up. Uh, you know, and when I was leaving in, in 2017, you know, every it, it felt like every week or every month, you know, somebody you knew would lose somebody. Uh, you know, or someone you knew would, would be killed. Uh, and that's how, and, th and that's how it was. And, and now, I mean, it's, it's, it's just even worse because you, you might've right. seen in the news, if you're following the news closely, because it never really makes the big headlines, but there's been a campaign targeting journalists, uh, women's rights activists, all these people who represent, I guess, sort of us um, ideals right. are being picked off and nobody knows who they are, although they suspect it's the Taliban. Were you there when uh, Donald Trump uh, took power? I guess you left in 2017. Yeah, I was, I was there at the beginning. What Was there a, because uh, obviously I feel like most people overseas follow U.S. elections closer than a lot of people in America follow U.S. elections. Um, probably because, again, we like write their life for them in, in some ways. Um, what was the mood when when Trump came to uh, to power? Because obviously, you know, one of the issues that a lot of people have with the Obama administration was, you know, the guy got a Nobel Peace Prize, which he should probably give back. I mean, the drone war was absolutely heinous and uh, the escalation. I mean, obviously, I know he was given a, a kind of a crap sandwich that he had to, you know, put some mayonnaise on when it comes to what the Bush administration gave him. But was there a sense with Trump? One of the things that, whatever, I I didn't 
hate the foreign policy idea of anti-interventionalism. I'm not an anti-interventionalist. And I think, you know, with the Trump, it's hard to say what his policy was because it would change on Twitter every freaking day. But theoretically, he was an anti-interventionalist. Was that perceived as something that the Afghanistan people wanted, the Afghani people wanted? I mean, I would say that when he came in, it was, I mean, even though he sort of was known to be a non-interventionist, Afghans in Kabul on the government side generally or you know, were pretty happy about it because during the Obama administration, there'd been this constant sort of these restrictions on what the U.S. could do to support the Afghan Afghans. So there were, you know, so if like an Afghan checkpoint got attacked, for example, under the Obama administration sort of tight rules, the U.S. wouldn't be able to go and support them with airstrikes. And so they would sort of be massacred there. And so this built up a lot of resentment in the army and in the police. And so when Trump came in, there was a kind of sense among people on the government side that that somebody who was able to take bolder actions would, um, you know, was there. Uh, I think there wasn't a real, there wasn't a sort of very subtle understanding of what Trump wanted to do versus, you know, what he what he ended up doing. He had all of these generals in his sort of around him, and it was assumed right. now the U.S. would really kind of step it up on the battlefield. Again, we're talking with Jessica Donati, the author of the book Eagle Down: The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. So I suppose we should probably get to the special forces because I guess that's what your book is all about. And that's that would be probably something good to talk about. Sure. <laughs> so when yeah. it comes to Afghanistan with the Trump administration, what was he was obviously four years. What were those four years? What did they look like? What's going on in Afghanistan right now? And when we talk about forever war, it, now I almost don't want to like say the term anymore because it's almost become cliche. And the people are like, yeah, we're in a forever war. It becomes like a meme, you know. And uh, it's important to remember that it, like, it's really brutal and horrible. Can you explain a little bit about what, what it looks like right now? Who is fighting this war? Like that's, you know, for the U.S., it's so weird. We talk about Blackwater. We have all of these different groups that fight in secret. And it's like, who is freaking fighting? Like legitimately, who is fighting right now in Afghanistan? I'm so glad that you asked that question because most people. Hey, I got one good question. I'll take it. <laughs> We'll edit this together just to make you're going to say that every question will be like, edit that, put that in where she said that was a great question. <laughs> I can say it again and again. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what nobody, nobody really publicly, and, and I'm talking especially about sort of the government, you know, you have these 10,000 troops that, they, that were there, say from 2014 when the war supposedly ended under Obama. There was that whole speech saying the war's a responsible conclusion. We now have fewer than 10,000 troops. They're just training and advising and doing counterterrorism. Nobody asks what counterterrorism actually means. Right. Right. And so, or, or training and advising. And so, you know, what does food, that mean? Because I mean, I watched, obviously, I've seen documentaries. So I'm sitting there eating food, being like, I think I understand. I don't know jack shit. <laughs> but I, my under, my layman understanding is basically uh, the, uh, the, the special, what, what do they do? Yeah, explain it. All that really changed. So 2014, there was this, you know, the Obama administration said we brought the war to an end. Everybody's coming home in 2016. It's now a training operation. It basically was all renaming the war to make it look like they weren't really at war anymore. So the special special forces who became pretty much the frontline people okay. is whenever they would go out on operations with Afghan forces, which is what special forces basically do. Um, they called it sort of a training mission instead of a combat mission. So even if you sort of dropped a special forces team in the middle of a Taliban controlled village on a mission to capture a Taliban commander, 
Right. They would say no, it was a training mission because you're training Afghan commanders. Well, that's so it's so easy to do. You just say it's not a war. You just say it's not a war. And you just say these aren't soldiers. You start calling them soldiers. You start calling them advisors. And so oh, if you look at the so press g- that came wow. out, these are advisors. It was a train and advise assist mission and so and so just right. you know, happened to be shot there. And all, I'm, you know, not a, I'm not a serial killer. I'm lowering future emissions because now they can't drive. Isn't that perfect? <laughs> I'm an environmentalist. Right. Wow. Right. So they literally just changed that. And then what? And then, as a journalist, though, how do you explain that to people? Because it's not nuanced. You can't put it in a freaking chyron on the bottom of some stupid screen. Like, how do you be like, no, uh, like a there? These are war acts of war that they're pretending are just like fun little games that we play to get a little bit better. It became very difficult. I mean, especially in the early years when they introduced this language, it became very difficult for journalists to do anything, especially since most of the journalists covering the war in Afghanistan aren't actually in Afghanistan. They're sort of in the Pentagon and they're covering, you know, everything else that the Pentagon's doing. And so they get a press release saying so-and-so died in the train and advisor assist mission. That's what, that's what they write. You know, and if you're a journalist in Afghanistan, it's very difficult to get access to U.S. soldiers unless the U.S. military gives you access, which, of course, when they're trying to stop the war from being made public or from being talked about in public, you're not going to let journalists go and, like, embed with special forces so they can write about everything that they've seen, right? That just right. doesn't make sense. So it is it is difficult, but, but I mean, th- there are ways to do it. So, for example, what we started to do um, was that we would start to embed with the Afghan forces that were with okay. the Americans. So if we know Americans, they've got a team there and their job is to prevent this, you know, city from collapsing. So we would embed with the Afghan side and then you get access to the Afghans and then the Americans are there. And then you can go up and chat to them and ask them, you know, what are you guys doing? And, and that sort of thing. And then you can sort of put together what the what the U.S. military is really doing, but it, it yeah. really shouldn't be that complicated. How was that uh, in, being embedded with the Afghan side? Obviously, a Western a Western gal. Um, was that uh, that must have been a really strange kind of a culture shock? What sort of adjustments did you have to make? I mean, for me, I mean, for me, it was possible because I had a really great Afghan colleague that was willing to do these embeds with me, and I totally trusted him uh, to basically keep me safe. Because you would go to these sort of remote bases and you'd have to sort of drive there for, you know, hours or, or it would take days to get there. And, uh, you know, you'd be wearing like a burqa and like you'd be sort of all, you know, covered up. And, uh, you know, you get to these bases. How did that, you know, when it comes to, it's, it's so weird, like, uh, I'm not a fashionista. I just got into uh, big and tall sweaters, which is pretty exciting. But how does that feel? When you are wearing a burqa, obviously you're not, I'm not sure if you are a member of the religion or not, but I would assume it's a, it does not feel, it's not, it's, it's foreign, right? Uh, How was that experience for you? Just kind of putting on that garb and putting on that clothes, putting on those clothes and then also seeing the mirror, the the reaction of people when, when, uh, when they approach you, was there a difference when you wore the burqa? Like that's a really strange thing that I don't think that men really uh, fully understand. I mean, for, for a woman, like it is, it is quite a blessing if you're a female journalist in Afghanistan to be able to wear this burqa because suddenly you become pretty much invisible. Mm. You know, if you go out looking like, you know, like a foreign woman and I've got like light hair and stuff, you know, draw a lot of attention. And if you're in an area that is, you know, hostile to, uh, to, to Westerners, which is an increasing amount of Afghanistan right. pretty much. 
you know, you don't want to be, uh, you, you don't want to be noticed. And so you generally have to try and blend in. And if, as a man, it's, it's harder because, you know, Afghans have a sort of generally smaller build than the Americans sort of Americans there. So with a burqa, you know, as long as you didn't stand up because I'm quite tall, uh, you know, people would generally just ignore you. And so you could travel. Anyway. So we were able to drive, you know, we would, we would drive through areas that were very unsafe because, you know, my Afghan colleague is like, you know, big, dark beard, long hair, you know, looks like a Taliban. He gets stopped by the police for being a Taliban. And then there's like, nobody really will pay me, pay any attention to me with a hijab, which is what we wore in Kabul. And anyway, you have to wear a head, a head covering, you know, it becomes like a second nature to the point that like, I would have nightmares about leaving the house without my hijab. Oh my God. That sounds like me with my freaking COVID mask. Right. Yeah. It's similar, you know, same, same sort of principle and you get into trouble if you leave without it. Right. You right. Know? And, yes. and that's probably all that would happen in Kabul. But um, yeah. Yeah. And even for, you know, a year afterwards, I felt uncomfortable without having the hijab on because I was so used to it. Oh, really? That's interesting. So you really took to it. You're like, all right, this isn't so bad. I can blend. And as a journalist, that's a, it's like a secret cloaking power. What if you like going out without your trousers on kind of thing, you know, like (laughs) as a, as a woman, you know, you just wear the hijab. So I just got very used to it after, after many years. I'm not allowed to go out without my trousers on anymore. After a few, (laughs) I'm going to call them fun experiences for me. (laughs) Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. But let's go back. I'm sorry. I de- well, not a, I'm not sorry because that was fascinating, but we were talking about who the heck is fighting. Um, so you're in Afghanistan. Can you explain who are these forces? You know, obviously in a... Um, you want to have like very like clinical black and white thinking like you got the U.S. troops and the Afghan troops. And, but we know these are very tribal regions. So and we know then we also have corporate interests, global corporate interests coming in uh, that have a lot of money to be made in arms sales and oil and things like that. So who's fighting out there? So when, what we sort of what became apparent was after this sort of supposed withdrawal and the war supposedly ended back in 2014, what happened was Afghanistan very quickly sort of spiraled out of out of control. And so they started to see sort of villages and cities, uh, you know, start to fall to the Taliban or be at risk. And so what they did was they sent in these special forces soldiers, which is basically made up of what you would hear in the movies being like an A-team, you know, yeah. 12 guys and each guy has a special role and they all look, you know, a bit like, well, they don't actually in real life, but you know, like the movie. Right, 13, right. 
12 strong they look like Thor kind of thing and they go in and so they would send in these guys uh, you know alongside a partner team of Afghan commanders and they would basically like break into cities that were at risk and then you know call in airstrikes and sort of clear the Taliban out so they were using these teams and where did those teams come from were those international teams or like who are those the best of the best of the best of the best like it's so weird like who are those people well, they're, they're, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're Green Berets. They're sort okay. of special forces and they come in, they've got, you know, they've got this 12-man team, but then they've got attached sort of specialists, you know, people specialized in intelligence, people specialized in, I don't know, calling in air support. And these teams work with sort of an, a group of elite Afghan soldiers. Okay. And they're kind of like firefighters is really the best way to put it. They, they live in bases scattered around Afghanistan and then they're sort of called in to rescue, you know, whatever village or city that looks like it might fall. So as soon as they, because if you have sort of, I don't know, a major city fall to the Taliban, that would be like a big news headline, right? right and then, right. You know, or a little news headline, but it would, it might even sort of make a splash in the US. And you don't want to draw attention to the fact that you're losing control of the country. So right. you use these guys and these teams to kind of prevent uh, sort of major, major sort of losses to the Taliban. And that's what they've been doing pretty much, which is, what I ended up writing about in my book, because it was very difficult to sort of show this in a news story because you would, it, you, you just couldn't get the whole picture. So uh, over the years, I kind of put together this um, account of how they use special forces to not lose Afghanistan completely. Again, Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting the forever war. This, uh, just check out this book. That is like, it is endlessly fascinating. So um, so you have these, I, I guess just in my mind, I think more of a scalpel, right? Like these guys are just like cutting right through and they just get right to the, right to the source. And then you sort of have your macro, you know, policy war stuff going on when it comes to these special forces, what was their end game? Did they have an end game or was it, as you mentioned, firefighters, um, and I want to talk about journalism and 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 and, and the the prism of war and how you how you cover war as well in a second. But when it comes to the, when it comes to these guys, is it really just putting out fires all across um, the country? And then if that's the case, is, is there any way? Is there any building process? Do they have any rebuilding um, abilities, or is it really just like it, it just seems like band aid, band aid, band aid, band aid, band aid? Let's keep yeah. our fingers crossed. <laughs> Which is, I think, why, like, I mean, you, why I managed to put the put together enough information for a book because a lot of these guys are frustrated, right? Because they're right. being used to sort of go into the same places because it's the same places that are falling over and over again, right. and you know, and in the process, they might lose one of their buddies or you know, might lose limbs and stuff, yeah. right? And might so lose their life, to, yeah. Yeah, year after year, yeah, year after year, and they are losing the same guys in the same, you know, in the same places. They have to go home to their families and explain why so and so was, you know, killed in, in Marja, you know, or sang in all of these places that that Americans are familiar with, and they're still contested. But there's no long term plan because because there aren't enough troops to build it up, and because the effort to kind of build in Afghanistan failed anyway, right? And so right. they're 
they're able to keep the war out of the headlines because you don't have these major losses. And so it kind of goes on year after year with these guys sort of keeping it, keeping the ship from sinking. Right. And then, you know, American leaders say, okay, well, more time, you know, a few more troops and it just goes on and on. What's the mood of, of those special forces? I mean, have they, I mean, there must've been people that were sent there as, as you know, lower rung. I mean, I've, if you're a Green Beret, you're like, you're always, you're higher rung no matter what, but you must've been on the lower, on the totem pole of the Green Berets. And now they must be in charge of certain groups. I mean, right. these people are, have been there for, you know, dec- over a decade, perhaps. There is, there is a guy, he's been there, he's deployed there every year since the beginning. Oh my uh, you know, God. now he's he's a uh, he's very senior. Um, I'm not going to say who he is, but uh, the Green Berets, I guess, listening to this would probably know who he is. And yeah, every year, and a lot of the guys there, they would be on their fifth, sixth, seventh deployment. You know, and imagine each time you're not seeing any improvement, you're seeing things get worse, you're right. losing your friends, and you're getting sent back. So I think a lot of people are frustrated. I think it causes a problem of, you know, attrition, uh, you know, mental health issues. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, for the for the younger guys, though, I mean, it is it's different. You know, if this is if you've been training your whole sort of life as a as a Green Beret to you know, to go out to war, like this is your moment to be tested on the battlefield. This is your chance to put what you've learned into practice. So I think that, like, realistically. You know, for the younger guys, uh, you know, it is it is like, I guess, exciting to be able to go to war to a certain extent, even though right. I imagine the, the reality afterwards is it's not so great. If you could ask the, the that the, the Green Beret that you mentioned, who has been there, who has just seen it all, what decision would they make? Because that always seems to me like we never ask the people that really understand things what policy should come forth. It's usually just like, well, this tweet got a lot of response. So we're going to have to go with this. What would they, what does that person recommend we do? Is it straight up? I mean, because I, mean, I feel like these would be people that I would like to know their thoughts. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think that currently you'll see them way on the side of pulling out. Uh, you know, there was one. One guy, he'd he'd been on multiple deployments and uh, I asked him, you know, like, what would you do if the U.S., you know, pulled out tomorrow? And he said, I would weep tears of joy. Wow. So they don't have any so they don't have any sense of like, um, oh, man, I guess I know what they I know. I'm sure that they take it very seriously, but they don't have any sense of like um, the need to stay to rebuild. They don't have a connection with the community like no, that. They do. I, think, they do. Okay. I think a lot of them, especially the guys that have been there, you know, going there for years and especially the Green Berets that were involved in the early sort of surge years where they really did sort of live alongside Afghan sort of uh, Afghan villagers and raise up right. these, trying to create these militias. I think they really do have a strong sense of attachment to the community um, I think the problem is, is that if you go there and every time you come back, you see things are worse, you know, right. then you're kind of like, well, this is trending in the wrong direction. Right. And, right. you know, whereas in the earlier years, you know, they would sort of, you know, sleep, eat, fight alongside the, the Afghan sort of forces that they were training. Uh, later on, they couldn't do this because there were so many insider attacks that there were, right. it wasn't safe because they couldn't, their partners couldn't be trusted. So you have this huge level of distrust between the two sides, you have resentment from the Afghan side because they're still there 10 years later, no break. And the Americans come in and out every six months, you know, expecting them to keep up the same pace. When it comes to the an Afghan soldier 
fighting alongside uh, the U.S., right? What is that decision process like for that Afghan soldier? Because uh, being uh, in Afghani, uh, obviously there must be a lot of people around that person being like, I can't believe you're fighting with the U.S. It, do, do they feel, they must feel like very conflicted. And then some people must think they're like straight up treasonous. Can you explain a little bit about that thought process of an Afghani soldier fighting with the U.S. who loves Afghanistan, um, but maybe seen as someone who is almost going against his own people? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, one important motivator is money. Um, there's not a lot of jobs in Afghanistan. And so working, uh, joining the security forces, of the army or the police is a good way to make a living. Um, the other thing that I would say is that uh, a lot of families hedge. They'll have, you know, one son in the police, one in the Taliban, you know, and make sure that they're sort of, that they're balanced out. And, uh, and in other, I mean, in other cases, perhaps they would not tell their families what they were doing, you know, going off to work, you know, in the city doing, you know, some imaginary job when in fact they're working with the, uh, with the U S you know, you mentioned hedging. So let's say you one is working with the Taliban. Can you explain a little bit? Um, because we hear the Taliban, we hear like, Oh, that's a Taliban controlled region. What does that mean? What does the Taliban do? Do they provide services? Do they provide food? And then obviously the inverse, do they have, do, are they instigators of violence? Uh, like what is the, the, the Taliban? What does it look like on a daily basis? I mean, generally they are, I mean, most of them are Afghans uh, and they, I mean, in their, in their community, they do uh, actually sort of provide services. Of, often they'll provide or they'll administer services that are actually paid for by the government and by it's sort of in turn by the US. So for example, schooling uh, in Afghan, in sort of Taliban controlled areas, the Taliban will have a say who becomes a school teacher, what they teach in the school curriculum, who gets to go to school. Yeah. And of course, who's paying for the school services? It's the Afghan government. And who funds the Afghan government? Well, that's the US and their allies. So are they getting a fairly Western uh, view of, uh, of the world when it comes to their education? Like if you're a kid, you sit down, you're going into fourth grade. What are you, what are you learning? I mean, if you're, in a, if you're in an area that's sort of Taliban influenced, you're not going to be learning the subjects that you'll be learning in Kabul. Um, you know, okay. they might take English out of it uh, and sort of anything that's sort of more, I guess, challenging that sort of uh, religious philosophy and you have much more of a focus on religious studies. Okay. You may see girls not go to school past um, puberty, um, things like that. Okay. So it's pretty, I'm going to say it for lack of a better term, old school. Which is not not good. It's not like basketball in this way. It is not good old school. It's bad old school. So when it comes to, again, we're speaking with Jessica Donati. Check out her book, Eagle Down. You can pre-order it. Uh, go to her Twitter, Jess Donati. And uh, just, yes, this stuff is endlessly fascinating. Um, so can you talk a little bit about journalism in the context of war? Just the number one question, and this would be the, the final little conversation we'll have here, because I know you have to go do much more important things than talk to me. Um, but what is your view of the role of a journalist in covering war? Well, I think that mostly we should try, and this is kind of hard to believe today, but like the journalist is supposed to be impartial. You're supposed to try and, and be balanced. And I think that is, and, and tell the, you know, as, pos as much as possible, the whole story. Right. Uh, and the complete story, not sort of leave one dimension or leave out context, right? 
So, I mean, in Afghanistan, that's obviously quite tricky to do because you don't have a lot of access to the Taliban. And even worse, you don't have any access at all to the group that calls itself Islamic State. So one of the things, one of the major challenges that we had as journalists was that you would see sort of a, a bomb would go off and the Taliban right. wouldn't claim it. You know, and the government would say, well, it's ISIS. Yeah. And you'd be like, well, is it ISIS? And, you know, and then you'd have who are ISIS? Like nobody knows because nobody in Afghanistan, no journalist has ever sort of met ISIS or interviewed them. ISIS had a spokesman and the US uh, killed him in a drone strike yes. uh, several years ago and there has not been a replacement. So whereas you see sort of the US every year launches these kind of counter ISIS operations and you know, you've got to stay in Afghanistan to prevent the resurgence of ISIS. Nobody really has any contact with them or, or knows their perspective or, you know, do, are they really a threat? Do they really want to attack the U.S.? Are they really ISIS? I mean, that's another question. Or are they not just a bunch of Afghans or Taliban that have rebranded? What is the view of the Afghanis towards ISIS? Do they, is, is this like, yeah, you, it, man, that's really fascinating. It, it's, is it a fluid movement? We went to, didn't we go to, we went to war based upon this group, right? So like we've cost billions of dollars, tens of thousands of lives based upon this group. And uh, you're saying it's difficult to even put your finger on what the heck it is. Well, I mean, the idea is that some sort of they were these breakaway groups of the Taliban were inspired by um, Islamic State the movement in, in Iraq and Syria. And they sort of started yeah. to call themselves this and they got a lot of attention. And so... Uh, I think my feeling was that both side, both the sort of U.S. and the Afghan side, to a certain extent, played up the fact that, you know, our Islamic State is now in Afghanistan and therefore we must commit more troops and more time to prevent, you know, a repeat of what we saw in Iraq and Syria. Yeah. One of the big problems that you have as a war, as sort of a, covering a war in, uh, in Afghanistan, say a, a big bomb goes off in Kabul and you want to figure out who's actually responsible for it. Right. There's so many possibilities because, you know, the Taliban might claim it, but if it's an attack that kills a lot of civilians, they're not going to claim it because they don't want to look like they've just sort of massacred ordinary Afghans because that's not good for, you know, their image. Right. So, you know, maybe the next day, Islamic State in Iraq, Syria will put out a statement saying that was us. But was it really them? I mean, if they didn't claim it till the next day and they read the headlines, maybe they're just taking credit for something that, you know, that they're not responsible for. And then you have other players, like you have the government side of factions in the government, like maybe some factions or some factions do want to sort of destabilize the capital to make it look like the government is weak or that it's failing or that you want you want it to look like the U.S. needs to be there to prevent, you know, the unthinkable. So there's many players and it's very difficult to, to do that, especially if you're on a news sort of deadline where you have to, you know, cover everyone's sort of got the news of the attack out and everybody wants to know who it is. And they have to know like that same day when it might take a long time to figure out who's really behind it and why the attack took place. Yeah, ISIS. It's so interesting. It seems like the sequel to an, to an action movie and it started with the Taliban was in episode, was in the first movie. And you're like, that's pretty bad. I wonder what the bad who's going to be the bad guy in this one. And it's like ISIS is just perfectly worse and uh, and absolutely horrific. So from a messaging standpoint, it definitely worked. Right. The idea of being scared of ISIS, the idea of staying in this forever war, the idea that we need boots on the ground uh, in Afghanistan because of ISIS. My God, people took that and ran with it because it was such a compelling narrative. It was a compelling narrative. And I think that, I mean, whereas there was some sort of 
they wanted to balance it out and not look like they were sort of calling too much for ISIS. And it was a, it was a powerful motivator for the Obama administration to not go through with the with, with the withdrawal that they planned in 2016. If you remember the Obama administration, by 2016, they were supposed to have zero troops. Yep. But they cancelled that plan because of instability and then because, you know, ISIS was emerging, they didn't want a repeat of, of what, what had happened in Iraq. Right. Uh, you know, they couldn't safeguard against Al Qaeda. There was always this idea that there was a threat that Al Qaeda could resurge or, you know, regain ground in Afghanistan. And so right. it was what it was one of the factors. But it, but that's what's challenging as a war correspondent there is is to figure out, you know, what's really going on. When you mentioned um, omission, basically, I think when it comes to lying, the biggest lie of all media is the lie by omission. Uh, where they just tell you half of the story and everything in that half of the story might be 100% true. So you'll get your fact check. Everything is on Snopes. Snopes is like, that is accurate. But you're going to be missing an entire other accurate side of the story. Can you talk a little bit about how lying by omission has been used uh, by the powers that be to continue this forever war and continue um, involvement in the Middle East? I mean, cause it, it just seems it, and that's what makes it so difficult to, to sparse and, and try to find the truth from a media perspective. I mean, I don't know whether there's a sort of systematic effort by journalists to, you know, to do that. I think it's more a question of like just the, the structure of the industry. You know, there's not enough time. Uh, you know, there's a there's a demand for like, you know, the news, very, the news cycles very fast. Right. And so there's not a lot of time to really establish the facts. And then generally, there's also a problem that news organizations don't really invest in foreign bureaus the way that they used to. So most American news organizations don't have anybody in Afghanistan to tell them what's really going on. So, you know, you have like the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they've got they've got bureaus there, but pretty much no, nobody else does. CNN don't have a Fox, don't have a have a bureau there. Right. So it's very difficult to cover a conflict when you haven't got anybody there. And so that leads to kind of emission, omissions and problematic reporting as well. And uh, from a journalist perspective, journalists can also just be used to amplify the, the, the power, right? To amplify the voice of the people who are in power and they have a, a motivation to stay in power that might not be uh, in line with the greater good. How do you make sure that you don't, uh, that, how do you make sure, like what, what uh, mental strategies do you use or how do you make sure that your scruples are staying strong and you're like not just following the whim of this leader and next thing you know, you're writing articles and basically just aiding and abetting their own gain. How do you, because I think that's so difficult um, and that's what we need journalists for. Part of it is also choosing what to cover. Uh, you know, one of the things it's sort of like, what does Afghanistan like for somebody who's not there? I mean, there's a lot of it that as, as a journalist, you don't necessarily cover because, you know, there's not an interest necessarily. People only want to know about the U.S. involvement or you don't want right. to cause like an attack. You don't necessarily want to report that, hey, there are these bustling cafes in Kabul where men and women mix freely, you know, and it's like, you know, that's, because you don't want you don't want to create to cause an attack. So, you know, so you do that. But the best way really to safeguard or to try and hedge against that kind of those kind of mistakes is to be to be well informed, to, you know, read widely, to also make sure that you're engaging with a wide range of people, that you're not just speaking to one side or one set of opinions and that you're also hearing the other side. Right. 
And then I'm sure that, do you have any strategies as well, just for anyone listening who wants to become a, a journalist um, and become like, I mean, I was just talking to Travis, uh, you know, like the balls of steel, like you guys are the toughest MFers I've ever seen in my life. You guys go to war zones, but you you have a, a pen and paper and a, and a camera and you don't like, it's it's incredible what you, what you do. When it comes to um, the journalist job in a war situation, what sort of strategies do you use to get somebody who is secret, someone who doesn't want to be on the record, someone who 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 might have their family murdered or themselves murdered if they find out that they spoke to a journalist? How do you do that? Like, how do you get somebody to trust you and um, and, and and put their lives on the line? I mean, it depends. I mean, people have different reasons for talking to journalists. I mean, anywhere. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of the time in Afghanistan, people, you know, people believe, especially if you're a foreign journalist, they believe that you'll be able to somehow carry some message, especially in sort of less educated parts of the country. They don't really distinguish between you being sort of a journalist with a foreign journalist, in fact, not even American and having zero influence with the American government yeah. versus you know, an American official. They just see you as like foreigner. Therefore, you must right. be, you know, with the foreigners. And it's like that simple. Uh, you know, so people have different I mean, different reasons for, talk, for talking to journalists, wanting to get their story out. You know, you build relationships over a long time. Yeah. And also you rely on local journalists who have those relationships as well and will and will help introduce you to, you know, this, te- uh, you know, person living under the Taliban or this Taliban commander or, you know, whatever, the more difficult people to speak to. Well, and talk about uh, heroes of the uh, of the fourth estate. I mean, people. In uh, in those places that want to be journalists, I can't imagine it's a it is a idolized job to be a homegrown journalist in Afghanistan. I mean, is that something that people aspire to be now? Actually, you know, I think that people are generally I mean, as people, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. now, like being a journalist is generally like a bad thing. Right. Like There's very low trust in journalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, what journalists are, are trying to do. Uh, whereas in Afghanistan, people kind of have an old fashioned view of journalism, you oh. know, that you are out there to go and like report the facts as best as possible. And there is a sort of fairly rich um, environment there for journalists because so much of it has been there's been so much aid invested in from the US and from other countries yeah. that you do have quite a sort of lively journalistic community, which unfortunately is under uh, under attack now because because whoever they are, um, whether it's the Taliban or some other groups, are targeting journalists, and so many of them right. have been killed over the past year um, in sort of uh, shootings and, um, and targeted attacks. So before I let you go and live a much better life than you having to talk to me, uh, what is going to happen now? We have we got Joe, we got Joe Biden in there. Uh, obviously, uh, he was uh, an advocate or a proponent of the Obama foreign policy that we had for eight years in this country. Extremely controversial uh, when it comes to again the the rhetoric matching up with the actions. Uh, a lot of wonderful lofty words met with a lot of horrible lofty bombs. Um, what do you expect to see in this region, in Afghanistan? What do you think the role of the special forces will be? Is he uh, the Obama or I'm sorry, the Biden administration, rather? Are they going to escalate the use of special forces, do you think? Any insight into what us the uh, what we should be? kind of looking out for when we read these articles and we peruse, uh, you know, uh, documents that might not be, again, talked about with Anderson Cooper or Tucker Carlson or whatever. Um, what, what, what should we expect to see coming from this administration? 
Well, the, the big deadline that they have at the moment is May, because May is when under the deal that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban, May is the date that all U.S. forces should be gone. Okay. Uh, and at the same time, you have the Afghan government and the Taliban engaged in these sort of peace talks, which started in September, but are going very, very slowly because obviously each side is waiting to see what the U.S. is going to do. Okay. Now, it looks like very likely that the Biden administration is probably going to uh, uh, try and negotiate an extension of some sort to get uh, to keep troops there past May. Uh, the idea being that if they can extend the presence a little bit longer, they'll be able to keep the peace process going a little bit longer, and then there's a better chance that they'll reach some kind of resolution. The big risk, obviously, is that if they do sort of say, okay, well, we're not going to pull out by May, the Taliban might say, well, then you violated our deal, therefore we're going to resume attacking you and we're going to redouble our attacks on the Afghan forces. And then you might see a return to, I guess, what you saw maybe sort of in the final years of the Obama administration, where you had the U.S. special forces and commandos going in and trying to sort of prevent these major losses, which would make it look very bad publicly, right. and try and keep things sort of out of out of the out of the public eye. You mentioned you mentioned how it would look bad publicly and how that was the re or how that is often the motivation for action, as opposed to like you know a lot of people are going to die to be like yeah, but how is it going to look on the front page? Right. It's very bizarre. But, you know, I mean, Biden has said that he supports having a sort of a counterterrorism force in Afghanistan, which, again, you know, what a counterterrorism forces, who are the terrorists, you know, who is what who are the forces? Like all of these. But, you know, that's what he said he supported. So I right. wouldn't be surprised if we saw a continuation of having sort of a small number of special forces doing the same stuff alongside Afghan commanders and sort of. Yeah. Continuing the forever war. Continuing. Continuing. Jessica, final, final, final question. Journalists cap off. We're just talking in a bar. What do you think we should do? What do I think I should do? What do you what do you think? Like, because you've seen it all. Journalists often be like, I'm just telling both sides, but what do you think we should do as a country or as a uh, when it comes to foreign policy? I think that it's it's difficult because on one hand, you know, I have many Afghan friends who are sort of westernized and did grow up in the sort of U.S. under the U.S. Uh, influence. And so it's really hard for me to say, well, I think the U.S. should go and just let Afghanistan sort itself out because you looking at years of horrible civil war, probably all of them would be displaced and their whole way of life would be lost. Um, with, but rationally, you know, the U.S. sort of staying isn't yeah. building anything. It's getting worse and worse. And so you've got to wonder, is this delaying the inevitable? Or at some point it is just going to collapse and there isn't going to be anything that can be done to prevent it. No more time, no more troops. Like That's just it. Is there any compromise? Is there any way to figure this out? I know this is a question that is literally thousands of years. But is there any way to, to have both the U.S. involvement in a non-military sense and make sure that they don't uh, become overthrown by the more extremist forces in their in their region. The big hope at the moment, which is what what I guess the Biden administration is hoping that they'll be able to do, is to get enough sort of regional cooperation that everybody is going to be able to kind of push the two sides to keep at a peace settlement. Because in reality, I mean, even if the U.S. does leave, you're not going to see the Taliban sort of come into Kabul and sort of take over because there is a very strong government side that with or without U.S. Uh, funding and support are still going to fight, right. you know, and so you are looking at a protracted civil war and you've got to wonder, you know, after 40 years of war, because they've been at war for 20 years before the Americans came along. Right. And so, you know, at some point, everybody is, is going to be tired and the peace process that they have started in Doha 
it is a genuine peace process. You do have real representatives from either side who recognize each other and are discussing very slowly how to share power. So well, it's a I big mean, the step in the right direction. It's a huge step. And, you know, and, it, and it's generally sort of not acknowledged in the media. You know, the media has been very negative about what's happened. I mean, in Afghanistan generally, but the actual getting these peace talks started is is a kind of an accomplishment. Um, okay. You know, it offers a little bit of hope. And so that's all that I can be hopeful for, I guess. Well, you know what? I love it. You know, I love it. We'll end it on hope. You know Good. what? We okay. don't do that all the time. And I think that's a great way to end it. Peace talks are great, uh, and uh, that's that's wonderful. Jessica Donati, Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting the forever war. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. All right, there it was, our conversation with Jessica Donati. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, the book Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting the forever war. My goodness. I We'll see what happens now with the uh, Biden foreign policy. I really hope that the hawk wing that helped put him in power, the Bill Crystals of the world, uh, don't win out because God knows we don't need any more foreign conflict. But that was that was fascinating. I haven't talked with a with a war journalist in a long time. And uh, it's just a different level of like they're just they're a different level of intense. I love it. Them. It's interesting. Like, I, I want to know more about the world reactions to Trump for the past four years. Right. Because, well, because you would think yeah. you would think that most of it would be negative, I would think. Well, but yeah. I, I also, you know, in India, for example, which is leaning towards nationalism currently, it's like, I think they almost see him as like a kind of a cool guy. Well, like, some, of the, some of the issues with Trump, he angered a lot of our allies, but he definitely helped or he did not anger a lot of others. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it, when it comes to the foreign policy of Donald Trump, that was not the worst part of his, uh, his, of his administration and that, definitely catapulted him in 2016 because you have the hypocrisy and the duality of Barack Obama winning a Nobel Peace Prize as we're watching drone strikes over Pakistan. You know, it's like all of those things helped Donald Trump. Yeah. And so, you know, again, you know, my thoughts on clocks, they're read a couple of times. And in this case, the, uh, the Trump administration wasn't, uh, wasn't totally off base when it comes to foreign policy in Afghanistan and no, Trump, I, Trump I am would have preferred to drone America, is what it seemed like. <laughs> that's kind <laughs> like of a the dr- problem. Drone strike Detroit. That's kind of the freaking problem. The, the war came home, didn't it? Just like Rambo. One and two. <laughs> one and two. Yeah, the guy was really consistent. Rambo. He was consistent. <laughs> I mean, the first one, he just killed a bunch of cops, and then the second one, he killed the U.S. military. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I like, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Next week, uh, I really want to talk about what's going on in Nevada. Big tech might become right. uh, extremely powerful in a legislative sense. Uh, they might be getting their own towns. And in said towns, they would have total control over the city councils. And uh, I, you know, I, I don't trust them. I don't trust big tech to to make policies that are going to be beneficial to everybody. I it seems like they really, want a dystopian. It would be very scary to live on some like cryptocurrency compound because that yeah. seems to be what's happening here. Is like the Bitcoin guys are shaking hands with the sovereign citizens guys. And then they, they want to create elementary schools for some reason. I mean, Hey, if I don't know, <laughs> I don't have no problem with Bitcoin either. I mean, get your, I think I'm invested in some Bitcoin. Apparently it's, it's good investment. 
I don't understand it. This is not investment advice. This is not this... investment advice for me. I, I am invested in a little bit of it. My buddy goes to a liquor store in Minnesota and they can pay with Bitcoin, but it's only one. That's really sweet. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's really sweet. I saw there's so many. I still don't uh, know how it works. But... So many bodegas in New York. I remember seeing uh, like in bed we accept Bitcoin, but we do not accept EBT. <laughs> well, <laughs> really like sick dystopian uh, stuff. So I imagine that's kind of what, uh, you know, that's kind of like the, compo- the compound uh, tech mindset. Nonetheless, well, we will keep you up to date on those things. Always stuff to talk about here on Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you all so much for the feedback. Um, it really is great to hear from you. And uh, yeah, we're just going to keep on going. All right, everyone. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.